Chapter 50 of Mystery of the Sea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Suzique. Mystery of the Sea by Bram Stoker. Chapter 50 The Eyes of the Dead. As I knelt with the dead woman's hands in one of mine, and the other over her eyes, I seemed to be floating high up in the air, and with amazing vision to see all round for a great distance. The fog still hung thick over the water. Around, the vast of the air and the depths of the sea were as open as though sunshine was on them, and I was merely looking through bright water. In the general panorama of things, so far as the eye could range, all lay open. The ships on the sea, and the floor under it, the iron-bound coast, and the far-lying uplands were all as though marked on a picture chart. Far away, on the horizon, were several craft, small and large. A few miles out was a ship of war, and to the north of her, but much closer in shore, lay a graceful yacht, slowly moving with the tide and under shortened sail. The warship was all alert. On every top, and wherever there was a chance of seeing anything, was the head of a man on the lookout. The searchlight was on and the sea and sky were lit alternately with its revolving rays. But that which drew my eyes, as the magnet draws the iron, was a clumsily rigged ship close in shore, seemingly only a few hundred yards beyond the Dunby Rock. She was a whaler, I knew, for on her deck were the great boats for use in rough seas, and the furnace where the blubber was melted. With unconscious movement, as though my soul were winged as a bird, I hung poised over this vessel. It was strange indeed, but she seemed all as though composed of crystal. I could see through her and down into the deep below where her shadow lay, till my eyes rested on the patches of bare sand, or the masses of giant seaweed which swayed with the tide above the rocks on which it grew. In and out amongst the seaweed the fishes darted, and the flower-like limpets moved ceaselessly outside their shells on the rocks. I could even see the streaks on the water which wind and current invariably leave on their course. Within the ship all was clear as though I were looking into a child's toy-house, but a toy-house wrought of glass. Every nook and cranny was laid bare, and the details, even when they did not interest me, sank into my mind. I could evermore, by closing my eyes, have seen again on which, in those moments of spiritual vision, the eyes of my soul had rested. All the time there was to me a dual consciousness. Whatever I saw before me was all plain and real and yet I never lost for a moment the sense of my own identity. I knew I was on shore amid the rocks under the cliff, and that Gormala's dead body was beside me as I knelt. But there was some divine guiding principle which directed my thought. It must have been my thought, for my eyes followed as my wishes led, as though my whole being went too. They were guided from the very bow of the ship along the deck, and down the after hatchway. I went down, step by step, making accurate and careful scrutiny of all things around me. I passed the narrow cabin, which seemed even to me to smell evilly. The rank yellow light from the crude oil lamp with thick smoky wick made the gloom seem a reality, and the shadows as monstrous. From this I passed aft into a tiny cabin, where on a bunk lay Marjorie asleep. She looked pale and wan. It made my heart sick to see the great black circles round her eyes. But there was resolution in her mouth and nostrils, resolution fixed and untamable. Knowing her as I did, 
and with her message, I can die, burned into my heart, it did not need any guessing to know what was in the hand clenched inside the breast of her dress. The cabin door was locked. On the outside was a rough bolt, newly placed. The key was not in the lock. I would have lingered, for the lightning-like glimpses made me hungry for more. But the next compelling force moved me on. In the next cabin lay a man, also asleep. He was large of frame, with a rugged red beard streaked with grey. What hair remained on his head, which was all scarred with cicatrices, was a dull red turning white. On a rack above him, under the chronometer, which marked Greenwich time as 2.15, ready to his hand were two great seven-shooters. From his pocket peeped the hilt of a bowie knife. It was strange indeed to me that I could look without passion or vindictiveness on such a person so disposed. I suppose it was the impersonal spirit within me which was at the moment receptive, and that all human passion, being ultimately of the flesh, was latent. At the time, though, I was conscious of it. It did not strike me as strange, no more strange than I could see far and near at the same glance, and take in great space and an impossible wilderness of detail. No more strange than that all things were for me resolved into their elements, that fog ceased to deaden or darkness to hide, that timber and iron, deck and panel and partition, beam and door and bulkhead were as transparent as glass. In my mind was a vague intention of making examination of every detail which could bear on the danger of Marjorie. But even whilst such an idea was in its incipient stage, so swift is the mechanism of thought, my eyes beheld, as though it were through the sides of the ship, a boat pass out from a water cave in the cliffs behind the rock of Dunby. In it, I saw, with the same seeing eye which gave me power in aught else, seven men of whom I knew at a glance to be those Marjorie had described in the tunnel. All but one I surveyed calmly, and weighed up, as it were, with complacency, but this one was a huge coal-black negro, hideous and of repulsive aspect. A glimpse of him made my blood run cold, and filled my mind at once with hate and fear. As I looked, the boat came towards the ship with inconceivable rapidity. It was not that she moved fast through the water, for her progress was in reality slow and laboured. The wind and the sea had risen, half a gale was blowing, and the seas were running so high that the ship rose and fell, pitched and rolled, and tossed about like a toy. It was that time, like distance, was in my mind obliterated. Truly, I was looking with spirit eyes and under all spiritual conditions. The boat drew close to the whaler on the port side, and I saw, as if from the former, the faces of several men who, at the sound of oars, came rushing from the other side of the ship and leaned over the bulwarks. It was evident that they had expected arrival from the starboard. With some difficulty the boat got close, and for the sea was running wilder every moment, and one by one the men began to climb the ladder and disappear over the bulwark. With the extraordinary action of sight and mind and memory which was to me present, I followed each and all of them at the same time. They hurriedly rigged up a whip and began to raise from the boat parcels of great weight. In the doing of this, one of them, the negro, was officious and always trying to examine each parcel as it came on board, but he was ever and always repulsed. The others would not allow him to touch anything. At each rebuff he retired scowling. All this must, under ordinary conditions, have taken much time, 
but to my spirit-ruled eyes it all passed with wondrous rapidity. I became conscious that things around me were growing less clear. The fog seemed to be stealing over the sea, as I had seen it earlier in the evening, and to wrap up details from my sight. The great expanse of the sea and the ships upon it, and all the wonders of the sea became lost in the growing darkness. I found, quicker and quicker, my thoughts, like my eyes, centered on the deck of the ship. At a moment, when all others were engaged and did not notice, I saw the great negro, his face overmuch distorted with an evil smile, steal towards the after-hatchway and disappear. With the growing of the fog and the dark, I was losing the power to see through things opaque and material, and it came to me as an actual shock that the negro passed beyond my vision. With his going, the fear in my heart grew and grew, till, in my frantic human passion, all that was ethereal around me faded and went out like a dying flame. The anguish of my soul, in my fear for my beloved, tore my true spirit out of its phantom existence back to stern working life. I found myself, chilled and sick at heart, kneeling by the marble-cold, stiffening body of Gormala, on the lone rock under the cliff. The rising wind whistled by me in the crannies above, and the rising sea and angry rushes leaped at us by the black shining rocks. All was so dark around me that my eyes, accustomed to the power given in my vision of making their own light, could not pierce the fog and the gloom. I tried to look at my watch, but could only see the dial dimly. I could not distinguish the figures on it, and I feared to light a match, lest such might betray my presence. Fortunately, my watch could strike the hours and minutes, and I found it was now half-past one o'clock. I still, therefore, had three-quarters of an hour, for I remembered the lesson of the whaler's chronometer. I knew there would be no time nor opportunity to bring Gormala's body to the top of the cliff at present, so I carried her up to the highest point of the underlying rock, which was well above high-water mark. Reverently and with blessing I closed her dead eyes, which still looked up at the sky with a sort of ghostly curiosity. Then I clambered up the steep pathway and made my way as quickly as I could round to the other side of the haven to try if I could discover any trace of the blackmailers or any indication of the water cave in which their boat was hidden. The cliffs here are woefully steep and hang far over the sea, so that there is no possibility of lying on the cliff edge and peering over. Round here, also, the stark steepness forbids the existence of even the tiniest track. A hare could not find its way along these beetling cliffs. The only way of making search in this channel would be to follow round in a boat. The nearest point to procure one would be at the little harbour beside the Bueller's Obuchanan, and for this there was not time. I was in dire doubt as to what was best to do, and I longed with a sickening force for the presence of Montgomery or some of our party who would know how to deal with such a situation. I was not anxious for the present moment, but I wanted to take all precautions against the time which was coming. Well I knew that the vision I had seen with the eyes of the dead Gormala was no mere phantasm of the mind, that it was no promise of what might be, but a grim picture of what would be. There was never a doubt in my mind as to its accuracy. Oh, if I could have seen more of what was to happen! If I could have lingered but a few instants longer. For with the speed at which things had passed before my inner eye in that strange time, 
Every second might have meant the joy or sorrow of a lifetime. How I groaned with regret and cursed my own precipitancy, that I could not wait and learn through the medium of the dead woman's spiritual eyes the truths that were to be borne in mind. But it was of no use to fret. Action of some sort would be necessary if Marjorie was to be saved. In one way I might help. Even alone I might save her. If I could get out to the whaler unknown to her crew, I knew I could manage this, for anyhow I could swim. For a weapon which the water could not render useless I had the dagger I had taken from Don Bernardino. Should other weapons be necessary, I might be able to lay hands on them in the cabin next Marjorie's, where the red-bearded man lay asleep. I did not know whether it would be better to go in search of some of my comrades, or to wait the arrival of the Don, who was to be back within an hour of the time of leaving. I was still trying to make up my mind when the difficulty was settled for me by the arrival of the Spaniard, accompanied by one of the young American naval officers. When I told them of my vision I could see, even in the darkness which prevailed, that neither of them was content to accept its accuracy in blind faith. I was at first impatient, but this wore away when I remembered that neither of them had any knowledge of my experiences in the way of second sight, or indeed of the phenomenon at all. Neither in Spain nor America does such belief prevail, and I have no doubt that to both of them came the idea that worry and anxiety had turned my brain, even when I told them how I meant to back my belief by swimming out beyond the Dunby Rock in time to reach the ship before the boat would arrive, they were not convinced. The method of reception of the idea by each was, however, characteristic of his race and nation. To the high-bred Spaniard, whose life had been ruled by laws of honor and of individual responsibility, no act done in the cause of chivalry would be other than worthy. He did not question the sanity of keeping of such a purpose. The practical American, however, though equally willing to make self-sacrifice and to dare all things in the course of honor and duty, looked at my intention with regard to its result, which was taking the step which would have the best result with regard to the girl whom we were all trying to save. Whilst the Spaniard raised his hat and said, May God watch over your gallant enterprise, senor, and hold your life, and that of her whom you love in the hollow of his hand. The American said, honest injun old chap is that the best you can do if it's only a man and a life you want count me in every time i'm a swimmer too and i'm a youngster that don't count so far as that goes i'm on but you've got to find the ship you know if she was there now i should say risk it but i'd come with you if you liked but there's the whole north sea out there with room for a hundred million of whalers without their jostling no no come i say let us find another way round, where we can help the girl all together. He was a good young fellow, as well as a fine one, and it was evident he meant well. But there was no use arguing. My mind was made up, and after assuring him that I was in earnest, I told him that I was taking a couple of rockets with me in which I would try to keep dry, so that should occasion serve, I would make manifest the whereabouts of the whaler. He already knew what to do with regard to signaling from shore, in case the boats of the whaler should be seen. When we had made preparations we could for the work each of us had in hand, the time came for my starting on my perilous enterprise. As my purpose became more definite, my companions, who I think doubted in their hearts its sincerity, became somewhat more demonstrative. It was one thing to have a vague intention of setting out on a wild journey of the kind, and even here common sense rebelled. But on the edge of the high cliff in the dark, 
amid the fog which came boiling up from below as the wind-puffs drove it on shore when below our feet the rising waves broke against the rocks with an ominous sound made into a roar by the broken fastness of the cliffs the whole thing must have seemed as an act of madness when through a break in the fog belt we could catch a glimpse of the dark water leaping far below into furious scattering lines of foam to dare the terrors of such a sea at such a time was like going deliberately to certain death my own heart quailed at moments when i saw through the fog wreaths a narrow track down which i must again descend to where gormala's body lay fading into a horrid gloom or when the sound of breaking water drove up muffled by the dark mist my faith in the vision was strong however and by keeping my mind fixed on it i could shut out present terrors i shook hands with my two friends and taking courage from the strong grip of their hands set myself resolutely to my journey down the cliff the last words the young navy man said to me were remember if you do reach the whaler that a gleam of light of any kind will give us a hint of where you are once the men of the keystone see it they'll do the rest at sea as we shall on land give us such a light when the time comes if you have to fire the ship to get it at the foot of the cliff path the prospect was almost terrifying the rocks were so washed with the churning water as the waves leapt at them that now and again only black tops could be seen rising out of the waste of white water and a moment after as the wave fell back there would be a great mass of jagged rocks all stark and grim blacker than their own blackness with the water streaming down them and great rifts yawning between outside the sea was a grim terror a wilderness of rising waves and lines of foam all shrouded in fog and gloom through all came a myriad of disconcerting sounds vague and fearsome from where the waves clashed or beat into the sounding caverns of dunby nothing but the faith which i had in the vision of marjorie which came to me with the dead eyes of the western seer could have carried me out into that dreadful gloom all its possibilities of horror and danger woke to me at once and for a moment appalled me but faith is a conquering power even the habit of believing in which i had been taught stood me in this wild hour no skeptic no doubter could have gone forth as i did into that unknown of gloom and fear i waited till a great wave was swept in close under my feet then with a silent prayer and an emboldening thought for marjorie i leapt into the coming water end of chapter fifty